Good morning. The passage that we're going to read follows the story about the apostles healing many people, so much so that they tried to be in the shadow of Peter as he was walking by so that they would be healed. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officer did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put er, and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thedius appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Thank you, Clara. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. 
I just love moving this podium. After I had been here for a few weeks, I was like, Nick, how come you move the podium yourself every week? And he was like, you know, it keeps you humble. So I was like, all right. So here I am moving the podium. I also love what Lloyd said about his mom saying, I love you more on the phone every time he says I love you, because my mom does the exact same thing. And uh, I'm always annoyed by it, but (laughs) I guess I should just trust her. Uh, Good to see you all today. My name is Vince or Vincent. And some of you are like, what are you talking about? Some of you are like, okay, you got to share the story behind this. Because when I first came to the church, I told everyone my name was Vince. And then a few weeks later, Nick, in a sermon, said that I preferred to be called Vincent. And then he put up on the screen, THE Vincent, THE in all caps. And I had never seen that before. And so people were like, do you really want to be called THE Vincent? And I was like, no, 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 no. So before we start the sermon, I just want to explain the story about my name so that none of you uh, feel awkward when you talk to me. I've actually had people like avoid saying my name because they don't know what to say. (laughs) Even though I know they know it's one or the other. Anyway, so I grew up as Vincent. My dad is named Vince and I was Vincent. That was how we were distinguished in my house. And I was homeschooled until eighth grade. And then in eighth grade I went to public school and I thought that Vince sounded cooler than Vincent. So I changed my name and I've been Vince ever since. But Vincent has still kind of always felt like my name because my family still calls me Vincent. And, uh, you know, I was Vincent for so long growing up. So then I'm in seminary, fast forward, you know, way later. And I'm like, whatever church I land in after seminary, if it's not in the Chicago area, I am going to tell them my name is Vincent from the beginning. So maybe that'll help me like emotionally bond with the people if they're calling me by my familial name. It's kind of kind of a weird thought, but that was what was in my head. So that was the plan. And then I got here and I just completely forgot the plan. And I'm just like... (laughs) Hey, my name's Vince. My name's Vince, because that's what I've been doing forever. So then I told that story to uh, Tony and Lisa Dalgo over there. Raise your hands, guys, if you don't know them. Yep. <laughs> Tony loves when you call attention to him. And uh, I told him that story, and then Lisa just ran with it. She told everyone on staff that I prefer to be called Vincent, and then everyone was confused. So bottom line, you can call me whatever you want. I'm already emotionally bonded with High Point, so... It's going to be okay either way. All right, now we're starting the sermon, okay? All right, so today we're going to be talking about the power of God. And we're going to be looking at the story that Clara just read, Acts chapter 5, which is all about the power of God. But as I was preparing this passage, I'm going to move this so I don't bump into it. As I was preparing this passage, uh, this sermon, I was like... Is this something that people really think about or care about or want to hear a sermon about? The power of God. Now, whether you want to hear about it or not, that's what we're talking about today because that's what the passage is about. And we are working our way through Acts and we think that it's important to talk about what the Bible thinks is important to put in the Bible. But we know that, you know, There's sermons about relationships or sex or, uh, you know, how to manage your time or your money that people's ears just kind of prick up because that's something that we think about in general. But we don't often spend a lot of time thinking about the power of God. So I was like, is this something people think about? So I started doing some research and I started looking at some Barna surveys and some Gallup polls and things that I, I think are pretty legitimate. And I was especially wondering for the people who might be here today who are not part of the church and do not consider themselves Christians, what are your thoughts about God God's power. And my, my instinct was to think that, you know, you're probably closed off to most of it. But here's what I found. 92% of Americans believe in God. That was higher than I thought it was going to be. And it's only dropped 4% since 1944 when it was 96%. So over the last however many years that is, I'm not good at math, but between 1944 and 2015, it's only dropped a few percent. So then I was thinking, okay, well, maybe people just think that God is kind of off doing his own thing and he doesn't interact with our world anymore. But then I found this. 72% of the country believes in miracles. So three-quarters of the country, whether you go to church or not, believes that at least something supernatural can happen among us. And that surprised me too. So I was like, okay, well, maybe people just think that miracles happen in life and death situations. You know, like someone pulls you out of the way of a moving car or someone, you know, is pronounced medically dead on the surgical table and then they're revived a few minutes later. And people say it was a miracle. But then here's what I found. 25% of sports fans pray that God will help their team win. (laughs) 
I mean, that's some pretty average stuff to think that God's going to get involved in. Some of you are like, what do you mean? I mean, seriously, you've got 100 people in the room, 25 of them in their heads are going, Lord, please help us to win. Please help us to win. That's, it's kind of funny, but that demonstrates that people still have some, some faith in God. This is even funnier. 55% of football fans believe supernatural forces are involved in the outcome of football games. So apparently football is a more spiritual sport, or maybe football fans are just a little off in their thinking. It's easy for me to make fun of football fans because you know, I'm not really a sports fan in general. I never played football, if you hadn't guessed. But... Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so this is kind of funny, but there's something important about this to realize that even though it seems, you know, we talk about how our country is getting more and more and more, you know, against Christianity, but people in general are more open to God and his power than you'd think they would be. I didn't do a lot of research into what Christians believe about the power of God, but I'm around Christians all the time. And the only thing that surprises me more than how much non-Christians are open to the power of God is how much Christians don't believe in the power of God. Now we say we believe. We say that God can show up and do supernatural things. We say that he can change lives. We say that he can empower us. We say that he can heal people. And yet, and we also think that he can do that through us. Like we say that God uses us to do these things, and yet we feel content to live lives that would be pretty explainable if God was removed from the equation. That we just go along with our daily things and if, if God wasn't involved, we could see our lives looking pretty much the same. That, that bothers me, you know? That doesn't sit quite right. Because you hear stories about God doing incredible things all around the world. You know, is God just concerned about the underground church in China? Is he just concerned about, you know, these stories we hear about bringing Muslim people to faith by giving them dreams where they see Jesus in their dreams and then go and find a Christian church? And God's like, I'll deal with the U.S. later, you know? I'll deal with Wisconsin later. I'll deal with Madison later. I'll deal with High Point later. I'll send them some power later. But right now, I'm busy. No, I don't think that's how it is. I think that God desires to move in power everywhere. And I think he desires to move in power in some supernatural ways. And I also think he desires to move in power in some really everyday ways, but that are still very apparent that God is moving. And here's where I think we're confused. And this is the really, uh, the main idea of what we're going to talk about today is the phrase I'm about to put up on the screen. So if you're taking notes, get ready to write this down because everything else is going to come out of this phrase. Here's where I think we get confused is that God moves in power on God's terms. And if you hope that God is going to help your team win, you're not going to see God moving that much. And if you pray that God will help you to win the lottery, you're not going to experience the power of God. And as Christians, you know, you've heard this before, but people say, if God answered every single one of your prayers, how, really how remarkable would it be? Would you be safe and healthy and have kids that love you and you get along with and money in the bank account? Because those are often the things that we spend all our time praying for. Only one out of five people who say that regularly pray say, who are Christians, say that they pray for people who are lost and far from God. Only 20%. That's like the same percentage of people praying for the sports game. So... If we want to see God move in power, we need to be willing to understand that God moves in power on his terms. To explain that a little more, we're going to see in this passage that God is moving in general. And if we want to see him move in power, it's less about waiting for him to move, but it's more about how we react when God does move. Because depending on how we react will determine whether we see God move more or whether God just stops moving then because God desires to move through us. I mean, sometimes he just does a miracle, bam, and everything changes and no people were involved except for the people that he directly affected. But oftentimes, God moves in powerful ways through us. But when he starts to move, it all depends on the way we, we react to God's power moving. So this passage shows us three reactions to God's power that three different groups and characters in the story demonstrate when God starts to move. And the goal is to be this way, on the right. And I'm, we're going to fill these boxes in as we go. You can draw this on your notes too if you want to 
follow along. But there's this far right side is the side where people are poised to receive God's power and to leverage God's power for God's own ends. And then as it kind of goes this way, it's, it's less effective ways of reacting to God's power. So we're going to jump into this passage. The first reaction that we're gonna, I'm going to show you in the passage is that of rejection. Just saying, I don't believe any of this. I don't believe that there's a God. I don't believe that God is moving. I reject Christianity. That's not many of you in this room. But it might be some of you. And if it is you in this room, I want to say I would much rather sit down and talk with you one-on-one than preach at you right now about why you shouldn't reject Jesus. And I would actually like to do that. And Nick would like to do that. So if you want to talk to anybody, we would love to sit down with you. But part of what the passage shows us is that some of the dynamics that come with rejecting God. The rest of you, I don't want you to totally tune out as we go into this either because this may be helpful for you with the people in your life who are not Christians to understand some of the ways they may be thinking. So we're going to jump into the story now. Let me get you up to speed if you were not here the last few weeks. Acts begins, and the disciples, uh, Jesus has gone up to heaven, and the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit comes, gives them supernatural power. They start doing miracles. They start preaching the gospel. And then the religious leaders of the time, who are not Christians, a group that are called the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin or the high priests, we're going to see all those terms in this passage, they get really frustrated with the Christians. And they're like, you got to stop preaching in the gospel, and the Christians are like, we're going to keep preaching, and so there's all this tension, and so far, nothing really bad has happened, and that's where the story picks up. So here is what we see, and this is right after Ananias and Sapphira, if you were here last week, that two people were bringing some hypocrisy into the church, and God so wanted to keep the church pure and free of hypocrisy that he struck these two people dead. And then this happens. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, which was a place very near the temple. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. That no one daring to join is because of Ananias and Sapphira. Because people were afraid, if I go to church, I go to the Christian community, and I do something wrong, I'm going to get struck down dead. Which is a very scary thing. Nevertheless... More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. So they're overcoming this fear and they're joining anyways. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So this is some crazy stuff. I mean, imagine, say you work at Epic, which I know some of you do. And you're walking in, and there's people laying on the ground in the parking lot of Epic, just lined up. And you're like, what are these people doing? And then the Christian guy pulls up, gets out of his car, and he just starts walking in. And they're like wriggling their way to try to get close to him so that his shadow falls on them, and they'll be healed. And then, even crazier, they are healed. Now, if you are the religious leaders of the time who are not Christians, how are you feeling about this? You know, you've spent all your time trying to gain popularity with the Jewish people, and you need to lead them spiritually, and Rome is holding you accountable to lead them spiritually, and then these people show up and start doing all these things that you never even dreamed you could do. You probably didn't even imagine that ever happening, you know, and they're just gaining so much popularity with the people. This is how they respond. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with, everyone say that word with me? Jealousy. Jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now that word jealousy means you want something that someone else has. So they see this power, they see this supernatural ability, and they're like, we want that for ourselves. But what do they do? They don't become Christians. They throw the Christians in jail. How come? Why didn't they just join and get the power for themselves? Even if there was some subversive motives in there, they could say, hey, we'll join, we'll get some of this power, we'll worm our way to the top, and we'll be the leaders of the Christian movement. Well, here's the thing. They liked certain parts of Christianity. They liked the power. They liked the healing. They liked the sway that the Christians had over people. 
but they couldn't get on board with certain parts of certain parts of what Christianity was. Christians believed in the resurrection, and Sadducees said, "No, I like everything going on, but I cannot get on board with that resurrection thing." And they also knew that if they became Christians, they would lose the politically sanctioned power from Rome because Christianity was not the recognized religion that would govern the Jewish people. So they knew that they would have to lose that. So instead of joining, because they can't deal with this one part, they throw the whole thing out and try to snuff out what the Christians are doing. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I know that that doesn't resonate with you yet. You're like, I wouldn't do that at all. If I saw all these miracles, it's not like I would be like, okay, let's put the Christians in jail. You know, I would just become a Christian. But look, isn't there some part of this that resonates with you? And that haven't you seen something in Christianity that has looked attractive to you? I mean, as, as many stories as there are about hypocrisy, you can see that a lot of Christians love each other. And you see that they love each other across generations and across socioeconomic lines. And you may see people raising their hands in worship. And you may see people crying during worship. And you're like, they're experiencing something. And I don't even think it's based on something real. But you still want to experience some of that thing. Myself and the staff just went to this conference uh, called Kainos in Memphis, Tennessee. It was all about how to build a multicultural church. And we learned a lot of things. But we learned that there's a 20 to 1 wealth difference between blacks and whites in this country. And you hear that and you're like, that's terrible. Who can, you know, who's going to do something to fix that? And there are people in the country doing all sorts of things to fix that, fix that. But we learned that in multicultural Christian churches, when black people and white people come together and experience the power of God and racial reconciliation happens, that this income gap just naturally starts to close. And this wealth gap just naturally starts to close. Why? Well, we believe as Christians it's because the power of God. That's just the natural thing that happens when God starts moving in people's hearts. Racial reconciliation happens. People in power start leveraging their power for the good of people who weren't in power. And when you hear that, I know you're like, yeah, that's just sociology. It's just what happens. You know, you don't believe it's the power of God, but part of you is like, I want to be a part of something like that. I want to be a part of making the world a better place. And you've seen bits and pieces of it in Christianity, but you throw out Christianity because you say, yeah, but I can't get into that whole Bible thing. I can't believe that this book was written and inspired by God. I can't believe that I'm supposed to live my life that way. I can't get on board with what it says about, you know, the homosexual lifestyle and all the conservative lifestyle things that Christians believe. So you throw the whole thing out. Look, I get it. I get it. If that's you, I get it. But if God is behind Christianity and is behind the church and he happens to have some different theological and sociological views than you, it's not going to help you to reject him. And you're not going to experience God. You're not going to experience something real and spiritual that I know you've longed to experience until you're willing to accept God on God's own terms and accept his power on his own terms. So I would say, you know, come talk to us. We can take it. We can take the criticism. You can say, I think you're an idiot. You can say, I don't think you understand your historical context that Christianity arose out of all those things. We can handle that. We're not going to be offended. We'd love to talk to you more. So, like I said, I know that's not many of you here today, but if that's you, we really, really would like to talk to you. Most of the rest of us, here's our problem. We think, okay, when I picture this continuum, rejection is on one end, and we assume that we're on the other end of acceptance, that we would say, of course I would accept God's power. God wanted to empower me to reach people for Christ or share the gospel with people or heal the sick or whatever, of course I would accept that power. But here's the problem. When it comes to the power of God, the opposite of rejection is not acceptance. It is obedience. It is not just passively accepting power from God. To be empowered by God on God's own terms means being obedient to whatever God has called you to that he wants to empower you in. We cannot channel God's power for our own ends. God empowers us as Christians for specific things that he wants us to do. And that's what we're going to see next in this story. Remember, the Christians have been taken 
and thrown in jail by the Sadducees, and that's where we pick up. Verse 19, but, and when my dad would read us Bible stories as a kid, where there was a big turn in the story that started with the word but, he'd say, now that's a pretty big but. And we were like, dad, come on, why do you gotta say that? It's not funny. But it's true, it's a big turn in the story. Here's what happens. But, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And as Christians, as we read that, we're like, yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He got those Christians out of there. Yay, God. Yay, Christians. Right? God vindicated these people who were wrongfully accused, and he's now, he's setting them free by the power of this angel. But look what happens next. And we'd say, yeah, I'd accept that power any day. Break me out of prison any day, Lord. But then, we say, then this is what happens next. The angel says, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, the angel, and tell the people all about this new life. Now, the temple courts are exactly where they sh should not go in terms of what the religious leaders want. They're saying, stop preaching the gospel, especially not in the temple. That would be an especially offensive place. They said, stop telling people about this new life. But this is exactly what the angel tells them to do. He could have said anything. He could have said, hey, I'm opening the doors now. Go back to your families who have been so worried about you. Or he could have said, hey, you know, uh, go flee because persecution's coming. Or he could have said, hey, go confront those Sadducees head on because I'm going to give you power and you're going to take over the religion at the time. And he says, no, go in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life. Go back into harm's way. Go back into trouble. Go back into oncoming suffering. This is what he empowers them to do. And it's not something they can just accept. It's something that they have to choose whether to obey or not. They could have just headed home and ignored the angel, but here's what they do. And this is where we all want to be and where we are so rarely. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. So that's all the people who put the apostles in jail to begin with. And sent to the jail for the apostles. Saying, hey, go, go pull them out of jail. Let's have the trial to see what we should do with them. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. Oh, how come? Because they were just freed by this angel, right? So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So this miracle was actually more intense than we realized. At first, the angel opens the door, lets them out, then closes the door and relocks it, all with the guards not seeing. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss. I'm sure they were, wondering what this might lead to. And now the text doesn't tell us what they were thinking or feeling, but I can imagine that they were thinking, we lost them. We lost our chance to, to have them go to trial because they're probably heading for the hills now because their God just freed them and let them go do whatever they wanted. But then look what happens next. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. The last thing they were supposed to be doing. They're right back at it. It's like, what are these Christians thinking? At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles right back into the trial that they would have had to go to if the miracle had never happened. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. God moves in power on God's own terms. And God did this huge miracle. Why? Just for the sake of the apostles getting a few more hours telling people about the message of Jesus. Do you see? That's the only difference it made. But God empowers what he wants to empower. And right then, that was what he wanted to happen. And he said, I'm going to go to all this trouble. I'm going to empower you all this much because these are the things that I care about. And it is the same dynamic with God today. Yeah, God will give us power to, you know, overcome sin and to defeat temptation and to love one another. And all that we need God's power for as well. But many times the things that God does the most powerful things on behalf of are the things of 
moving the kingdom forward and sharing the gospel with people and helping people who are in need and lifting people out of poverty and helping people break addiction. When we become focused on these things, these are often the things that God empowers in more supernatural ways. And it is a movement very often towards difficulty. When God empowers us to do these things, it is often a move towards difficulty and struggle and being uncomfortable and making your life more complicated rather than less complicated. But this is what God calls us to as Christians, and this is how God wants to empower us. So often we think we're saying yes to God's power, but we have not yet been obedient into the things that God has called us. And we have not experienced yet the power that God wants to give us when we start taking sacrificial steps into that obedience. Now some of you might say, okay, well I have never had an angel come to me and open a prison door and say, go do this. So I'm kind of off the hook, right? Because I haven't had God give me this kickstart. Here's the thing. Those people were the apostles. We're literally doing ministry day in and day out trying to serve God, trying to build a kingdom, trying to proclaim the message of Jesus. It landed them behind bars where they were physically unable to continue doing that. And the angel opened the bars so that they could keep doing what they were already doing. We don't have any bars. We are sitting here already empowered, already able and equipped to do that whatever God would want us to do, to take that first step. And yeah, as we continue down that road, God will empower us in more more explicitly supernatural ways. But for now, we stand here with financial resources and relational resources and intellectual resources and educational resources and community resources. We stand here with everything we need to walk into building the kingdom and proclaiming the message of Jesus and serving God however he would have us serve him. We stand here ready to go. Now, here's why I think we have a hard time with this. I also am I'm very sympathetic right now to some of you being like, what does that really mean? You know, because I've, I've got some non-Christian people I'm trying to reach out to, and I give some money, and, you know, I'm already doing, I think, the stuff you're saying. Like, I think I'm poised, and I'm ready to receive power from God, to receive power from God. And I, I think that's true for a lot of you, that you are poised. And I think that God might do some, some big stuff through us because we are ready to say, God, if there's something that you want me to do, I'm ready to do it. But here's how you kind of know when you're in that place on the far right side where you're just ready for whatever God could want to empower you to do when you know you're ready to do it. Here's how I think you know. When you have a proper understanding of these two words. Because as Christians, we are much better at no commandments rather than go commandments. Meaning we're really good at saying, hey, don't do this, don't say this, don't think this, don't act that way, don't handle your money that way, don't treat your spouse that way, don't treat your kids that way. And we're good at calling each other out on it and holding each other accountable to it and supporting each other in it. And all those things are so important. And God cares about us living a morally upright and virtuous life. But we are not so good at the go commandments. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know that's a commandment, but it doesn't have the same weight on our lives and in our hearts that the other commandments do. And we're going to call someone out and say, hey, you know, I think you're being frivolous with your spending. Or, hey, I think you need to save more. But we rarely call each other out and say, hey, I think you need to give more. And I don't mean to the church. I just mean in general. We'll say, hey, I think you need to have a better, you know, work-life balance and spend more time with your family and not so much time at work. But rarely will we call each other out and say, you know, where does ministry to lost people fit into your weekly schedule? We're so focused on the no commandments that we lose sight of the fact that there is a whole list of go commandments. Go and heal and go and preach and go and do and go and save and go be a part of what God is doing in the world. If you picture, you know, you, you can evaluate this. If you picture you live your whole life and you stay, you know, faithful to your spouse for your whole life, but let's say you never did anything to build the kingdom, you never did anything to preach the gospel, that person is like just considered a normal, good Christian person. You know, they're never going to get called out on that. With the opposite, let's say they were on fire for ministry and doing all these things, but they have an affair, then they're a total failure. And now I'm not saying that they're the same because they aren't the same, 
But it's not about comparing, it's realizing that both of these things are infinitely important to God. And a morally virtuous life that is, has no care for anything outside of your little circle of your family or, and has no care for people who are in need is just as damaging to the cause of Christ and to the kingdom as people who are dealing with these serious, you know, moral things. Like I said, it's not about comparing. It's understanding both of these things are so important to God, and both of them we are called to as Christians, the no commandments and the go commandments. This is where we want to get to, this place of obedience, complete obedience all the time, whatever God is calling us to. Oftentimes we are somewhere in the middle, in this place of evaluation. And there's a very interesting character in this story who demonstrates what this evaluation often looks like. A very interesting character named Gamaliel. I won't, I won't say much more about evaluation until we kind of see it fleshed out in the story. So this is verse 34. No, actually, let me catch us up because we skipped a little bit of the story. So they bring them in for the trial, right? And they again say, hey, you got to stop preaching the gospel. You got to stop doing these things. And again, Peter stands up and says, we're going to keep on doing it. We're just going to keep on preaching. And the Sadducees get really angry and they say, all right, let's put these guys to death. And then this guy, Gamaliel, steps up and here's what he says. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, that's just the place where they were all gathered, and ordered that the men, and that's the apostles, be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him, he was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. And then he gives them a recommendation of what to do. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel is doing a lot of things right here. You know, he's standing up for people who are being wrongfully accused. He's making sure that the Christians are not killed when they don't deserve to be killed. He's keeping a cool head. He's not letting jealousy just overtake him. And he's a great example that... God can use someone who is not a Christian to help further the cause of Christians. At the same time, this guy was a real person, right? And he didn't have as much at stake as the Sadducees because he wasn't given as much political control from the Roman government as the rest of them. And he's seen the same miracles. I mean, it doesn't say specifically Gamaliel had heard about what was going on, but he's in the trial with everyone in the room. Like, he's got to know why they're there. He has to have heard about the Peter healing people with his shadow. And he has to have heard that a few hours ago, these guys had somehow miraculously escaped from the jail and were preaching in the temple courts. And yet he's like... Yeah, you know what? I think something's going on here, maybe from God. But, you know, there was that one time that that one guy let a revolt. So maybe this is just something like that. And he just writes it off. I mean, technically he doesn't write it off because he's still saying, let's wait and see. But he doesn't jump in and join them. He doesn't say, I've seen everything I need to see. I've seen miracles done. I know that a Savior is supposed to be coming. I think that we missed it on Jesus. I'm joining with the Christians. No, he says, I'm just going to wait and see. I'm just going to evaluate. Let me just evaluate a little bit before I, before I stake my claim. I'm going to let someone else do the heavy lifting. I'm going to let someone else face the suffering, face the beating that they're about to take. And I'm just going to wait and see. And we don't know what happened to Gamaliel. You know, maybe, maybe he did become a Christian. The next chapter says that several priests became Christians, but maybe he didn't. But sooner or later, Gamaliel had to make a decision. 
And he, can't, he couldn't stay in that place of evaluation forever. And as long as he was in that place of evaluation, he was not going to experience God's power in his life. Whether you are a Christian or not, you have, we have a tendency to exhibit some Gamaliel-like attributes. Gamaliel seekers, that word seeker is kind of a dated word and no one self-identifies as a seeker, but it's a word that Christians love to use. But the, the word just means someone who is interested in Christianity and is taking some steps forward, but hasn't quite decided to come on board yet. So people in that boat oftentimes exhibit some Gamaliel type things, but Christians are, do the exact same thing. So let me talk for just a minute to the Gamaliel seekers. It is important to evaluate. And I'm not saying that you should just blindly become a Christian. Okay, that's, that would just be being gullible. So there's an appropriate part about coming and asking questions and doing some reading and exploring other faiths and all those things. But you could demand an infinite amount of evidence before you de- made a decision. And I think that sometimes we, when we're, when we're hesitant to join something, we think that it's better to be skeptical. Like, we can have all this proof and then we're like, no, just give me some more, give me some more. You haven't, you haven't convinced me yet. And I think that some of that comes from rejecting this idea of being gullible because there's stereotypes to go along with Christians that we just blindly follow this religion. And some of us do. Some of us have no idea why we believe. We just grew up with it and that's just what we follow. So people are like, I don't want to be gullible so I'm just going to be skeptical. But the reality is you don't want to be gullible or skeptical. You want to be objective. You want to be looking at the evidence, looking at the facts, looking at your experience and saying, is this true or is this not true? I've heard people say, it would take a miracle to convince me. And I'm like, man, is that even fair? But also, is that even true? I'll tell you a story really quick about a time when uh, what, I, what I thought was a miracle wasn't enough to convince someone. I had this professor in my undergrad who everybody um, really liked, and he'd always talk about his kids. And you know, some people talk about their kids in a really annoying way, where they're always bragging about them. But he would just talk about his kids like he just loved them so much. And one time I was praying, and I felt like God said, I want you to go tell that professor that God, me, like God was saying, tell that professor that I love the professor the way the professor loves his kids. And I was like, that's really weird, and I haven't really heard things like that before, and also that's not even like that cool of a thing to tell someone. Like it's cool to say to someone, you know, like, hey, 10 years ago you did this one very terrible thing, and God told me about it, and he wants you to know you're forgiven, and then they're like, oh my goodness, like, you know, God is real and it's a miracle, but you come up to someone and you say, hey, God loves you, they're like, okay, cool. But I, I felt like I had to do it. So I asked him out to lunch, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, I'm a Christian, and I sometimes, you know, like, you hear things from God, and I think God wants me to tell you this thing. And he's like, all right, what's the thing? And I'm like, well, I think God wants me to tell you that God loves you the way that you love your kids. And he just sits there, and his face is like blank, and he starts tearing up. And then he goes on to tell me that multiple people throughout his life have done exactly what I did, just unsolicited, come up to him and said, hey, I really think that God is after you. I really think that God loves you. I really think that God wants a relationship with you. And I'm like, so you're a Christian now? And he was like, no, not yet. And I'm like, what? Like, how much more of a miracle do you need than that? He's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to church and, like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out the whole resurrection thing. And I'm like, you've experienced more supernatural things than I have. But he's just stuck in this mindset of skepticism. So I want to ask you today, if you're here and that's you and you're a skeptic and you're like, I think I might believe at some point, but I don't know if I've seen enough evidence. Look, how much evidence is enough? Have you ever experienced anything that you couldn't explain? Which most of us have. Most of us have had something where we go, I think there's something besides this tactile world that we touch and smell and see and taste and hear. I think there might be something more. When you sense that, why was that not enough? God loves you just like that professor, and he cares about you, and he wants a relationship with you, and he sent you evidence, and he's going to keep sending you evidence, but there's going to have to be a point where you say, okay, I'm going to take some steps forward. I'm going to walk into this thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what happens. So I'm going to encourage you, if that's you, come talk to me. Come talk to Nick. Come talk to us. We would love to walk you through that. But as Christians, go to the next one now. We do... 
this same thing. This is what it looks like for us. We take the counting the cost mindset into our Christian lives. But Jesus says, count the cost before you decide to follow me. Look at all the things you're going to have to give up to make sure you're willing to do it, to follow me in that. And, we, and before we were Christians, we were like, all right, I'm going to do that. And then we decide to follow. But then as Christians, we keep that counting the cost mindset. And every time we think that God might be calling us to something, we're weighing. Yeah, I think God might want me to do this, but how is this going to affect my reputation? if I go and talk to this person about Jesus? Or how much is this going to affect my bank account if, you know, I give to this thing or I give money to this person who's in need? How much is this going to affect my retirement? How much is this going to affect my relationships? And we just keep counting the cost, counting the cost the whole time. The time for counting the cost is done. When we decide to follow Jesus, if there is anything that we know God is calling us to, it is no longer time to evaluate whether it's worth it or not, we just say yes. We just move forward in obedience. Sometimes we sugarcoat it in some, you know, Christianese language about, yeah, I'm really trying to discern if God wants me to do that thing. And there, there is a process of discernment. And I'm not saying you should just blindly rush in to everything. But I'm saying sometimes we know exactly what God wants us to do. And we say, ah, I just got to think about it a little bit more. And here's what we're missing out. I mean, as Christians, when we live this way, we're just missing out. Look how this story ends. So his speech, that Gamaliel's, that's Gamaliel. His speech persuaded them, the Sanhedrin. So Gamaliel convinces the Sadducees not to put the Christians to death. They, the Sadducees, called the apostles in and had them flogged. And being flogged just means they were beaten in a very severe way, likely in a way that would leave scars on their body for the rest of their life. This is where we see that, that same dynamic, that God empowered them to do something that did not result in safety. And whatever fear they had about being obedient, that things were gonna go wrong and it was gonna make their life harder, those things came true. And it's the same thing for us, that when sometimes we hold back because we think, yeah, but what if something goes wrong? Guess what? Sometimes something goes wrong. Even when we are most empowered by God, sometimes things still go very wrong. They were flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. But then look what happens. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That rejoicing in suffering is something that Jesus talked about in Matthew. And they, I'm sure, knew remembered this or had heard this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They were rejoicing because they knew that they were trading a momentary, temporary suffering for an eternal reward that would last forever. And they knew that it was so worth it. Some of you here are unhappy and frustrated and depressed or just living monumentally average lives because you have not yet been obedient to the point of suffering and you have not yet experienced the joy that comes when you give up something for Christ that actually costs you something. And there is no, I mean, we can get joy all sorts of different ways. You can get joy from going and looking at a sunset. But there is a specific kind of joy that comes from being obedient to God to the point of suffering to where it actually costs you something that is like no other joy. And there is a, a bond that forms with Jesus in that moment that is irreplaceable and is at the heart and the essence of the Christian life. That's why it's a call to come and die, to come and take up our cross and follow Jesus. When God empowers us, it does not result in an easy life most of the time. When God empowers us, even the very thing he's empowering you to do may be something that makes your life difficult or harder or more uncertain or more unshakable, but it is also something that if it leads you to suffering, that suffering will lead to joy, and it is the richest of all joys. And you know this is true. Because when that one time or those few times or that season of your life when you were giving up something that really hurt for Christ, you can look back and go, yeah, that was worth it. And it's, it's co 
coded in your brain in this kind of rosy glow because you were like, yeah, that was what life is about. We only live one time. And it's about making it count. And look, it's not always big and supernatural, but it is kingdom-oriented, and it is gospel proclamation-oriented, and it is empowered by God so that in the moment you're aware you're doing something that is bigger than what you're capable of doing on your own. And sometimes it is really supernatural. Sometimes it is unexplainable. But either way, it is empowered by God. So let me ask you, where are you on this thing? And what's the thing that you know, the thing you've been stuck in evaluation mode for far too long? That you're going, yeah, I know God wants me to do that thing, and I've just been trying to play around with it in my head and weigh the pros and cons, but you know that God is calling you to do it. Who's that person you're supposed to reach out to? What's that situation? What's that relationship? What's that thing that God wants you to get involved in. For some of you, it might just be that, you know, you've just been coming and kind of sitting and observing church for a long time, but you haven't just dived in. There might be something totally outside of church. I don't know what it is, but wherever you are, I just want to challenge you. What will it look like for you to move closer to that place where you say, Lord, empower me, regardless of the cost, regardless of how much it hurts, regardless of what I have to give up, I am willing to walk deeper into your power. And that's what will make all the difference. That's what these are, when we can get there, we become the, you know, the kind of people that, that change the world and change communities and change families when we are willing to suffer for what God wants us to do and to be empowered by him to that end. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for all the people in this room. And God, I thank you that um, their hearts are just so soft to wanting to know your will and wanting to know where you're leading them and wanting to honor you. And um, Lord, we all acknowledge that uh, the path of following you is not always very exciting and the path of empowerment is not always very exciting and it's not always big and flashy like it was in this uh, story with... um, the apostles preaching and healing people. Sometimes your empowerment does look kind of average, but God, we know that it is only through your empowerment and it's only through a posture of obedience to your empowerment and it is only through a willingness to suffer for you and for the sake of the gospel that the kingdom is going to go out and it is only through those things that we are going to find a joy that can only be found through those things. So Lord, give us the courage, show us the path, give us the the awareness of where you want us to come and die for the sake of your gospel. And Lord, let it be something that um, just fills us with excitement and hope right now and joy right now, knowing that we can be part of what you are doing. Lord, I pray specifically for, um, you know, the specific situations that you have in our lives that you might be calling us to. Lord, give us an awareness of them. Bring things to mind that you want us to do and let us go out and do them boldly. I also pray for the people here who um, have not made a decision yet to follow you, to give their lives to you. Lord, help them to just feel so welcome here and so free to ask questions and so free um, to evaluate for as long as they need to. But Lord, uh, move them out of that when the time is right and give them the courage to step out of that when the time is right. In your name, amen.